Good morning, and the conversation continues as we ease on into WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. And the holiday season is clearly upon us. Credit cards are going into meltdown as we're out there shopping for the gifts, beginning to think about the holiday menu, the parties, the friends, the things to get done. It's also a time of great holiday music. What's your favorite Christmas carol? Many people love the one, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And that's what I'm going to talk about, angels, this morning with my next guest. I'm pleased to welcome here for conversation on WIP Sunday, Laura Schroff, her new book. That new book is um, called Angels on Earth. Good morning, Laura Schroff. Well, good morning, Peter, and thank you for the lovely introduction. How are you today? I'm fine. Is it, is it gloomy in Philadelphia? Oh, very. It's very gloomy in New York. Yes. All right. Laura, you believe in angels? I absolutely believe in angels. Yes, I do. Why? Well, because I, I think there are people who are on earth that can be angels, and I also believe very much so that there are angels in heaven. In fact, my mother passed away at the very young age of only 47 when I was just 25 years old, and I have believed that she's by my side and has been by my side every step of the way throughout my journey in my adult life. And I picture her as this beautiful floating spirit with white fluffy wings, and she floats around with a clipboard, and she just kind of checks off all the things she needs to do for the day. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of mothers out there alive as well as maybe dead. Absolutely. How did you get interested in this to write a book, though? How did, how did you begin? Well, Angels on Earth actually came because of another book that I um, published back in 2011. And the name of that book was um, An Invisible Thread. And that book is about a young boy that I met back in 1986 who was a welfare child. And as I was walking up West 56th Street, he said, excuse me, lady, do you have any spare change? I'm hungry. And um, I said no, but then I realized what he said, and I went back to him. And long story short, we ended up developing a friendship that has grown over the past 30-plus years, and I believe it's an invisible thread that connected us, that he was someone who was destined to be in my life. And when... I, the book was coming out on my website. I asked readers to share their own stories with me of how they had an invisible thread connection, how someone had come into their life and had made a profound difference or they had made a profound difference on the life of another person. And in 2015, it's pretty long-winded, and I'm sorry for that, but in 2015, I realized I had the most beautiful compilation of other people's invisible thread stories of how these people were what I like to call them, angels on earth. What makes an angel an angel then, especially the angel on earth? Well, I believe what makes a person an angel on earth is someone who is willing to open up their eyes and hearts to their surroundings. And sometimes what you'll see is there's an opportunity right in front of you. For example, the very first chapter in Angels on Earth is the hug. And... Um, it's about a young woman, Drew Sanchez, who was in a grocery store, and she noticed a young mother with three small children. And from the groceries that she had in her bag, in her basket, 
she realized she was on a very tight budget. And it reminded Drew of when she was a young mother and she was single and struggling. And she realized she was in a situation where she could help this woman. And she went over to the woman and asked if she could pay for her groceries. And she ended up ultimately buying her a gift certificate and um, paid for her groceries for the day. So angels on earth can be people who are doing very simple acts of kindness and sometimes some really extraordinary acts of kindness. But we can all be an angel on earth by reaching out to someone and showing kindness. It's not as someone who was reached out to, but I don't know if you saw that film clip of a young man rescuing bunnies. Oh, I, oh was that the most incredible clip? An angel on earth. He, absolutely. In fact, it's so interesting because there is a story, there's a chapter in the book called The Rabbit and um, Lucy Galicio, and she had Jack a rabbit, and um, she used to bring this rabbit to school. She was a teacher, and she worked with children who needed special attention. And she would bring this rabbit to school because the children loved this rabbit, and they actually trained this rabbit to do things, to do tricks. And actually, when I saw that clip, I thought of Lucy and her rabbit. That was the most incredible click. And here was someone who really wanted no exposure. You know, he didn't really want to talk to the cameras and to the news. Afterward, he just wanted to save that sweet little rabbit. And many people praised him. I know, I know. It was, it was so heartwarming, and it's so terrible what's happening out in California right now. Absolutely. But there were those people who thought, this guy's nuts. I know, I know, but he didn't care. He wanted to save that poor rabbit. It was, ah, it took my breath away. Absolutely, I know what you mean. Um, and what makes an angel an angel if they're in heaven? Is it simply the act of dying? Well, you know, I do believe, you know, I believe that my mother's been with me, and it's, and I actually believe that she shows me signs. And, um, you know, I've been on this incredible journey since 2011 when my first book, An Invisible Thread, came out. And I never could have imagined that the book would do as well as it's done, and I feel enormously blessed. And I absolutely have no doubt that my mother has been by my side, and um, I choose to believe that she shows me rainbows, and I see rainbows in all different kinds of shapes and forms, and I've done probably over 200 speaking engagements, and the very first speaking engagement, and I talk about this in Angels on Earth that I was going to, it was for Big Brothers Big Sisters. And I was, I was nervous, and I, as I was driving my car to the event, I asked my mother to be with me. And when I got to the event, there was this little, she, there was the bigs were there, and also the littles were there, and this little girl, she kept looking at me. And so finally I went over to, and talked to her, and I knelt down, and I said to her, we keep looking at each other. I said, my name's Laura. I said, what's your name? And she looked at me, and in this very sweet, kind voice, she said to me, my name is Maria. And in that instant, I knew my mother was with me, and she was showing me a sign. My mother's name was Marie, but my, many people called her Maria, and other people called her Mary. And every single speaking engagement I go to, 
there's always a Maria Mary or a Maria in the room. In fact, I was doing a large speaking engagement for oh, School Nutrition Association. It was about 5,000 people. And I asked my mother if she could show up early. She usually would make me wait till I'm signing books. I said, but it's 5,000 people. It would be nice if I knew you were here. And I walked into the room, and the third person I met was a Marie. So I choose to believe that, that there are angels in heaven, and um, we're connected with them, even though we're on earth. You believed from the very beginning, though. What, are the, what about those people who either don't believe or aren't sure? Well, you know, everybody has their own right to choose if they want to believe or not, and I've, I choose to believe that there are angels in heaven. It brings me enormous comfort to know that there's always somebody by my side. Well, whether it's an angel or just God or whatever. Whatever, absolutely. You know, and I'm not a particularly really super religious person, but I am an enormously faithful person. You know, and when I speak at schools and I feel so lucky to be able to um, be invited to speak at schools about an invisible thread and um, how one small act of kindness can make an enormous difference. And there's also another chapter in the book called The Helper's High. And um, it's about how kindness is contagious. It's Dr. Dale Atkins' chapter, and she has studied, and so it, there's a lot of research on kindness. And what it really show, it proves is that when you incorporate kindness into your everyday life, the more you do it, the more it makes you feel better and you want to do it over and over again. And what I say to students is kindness is contagious and it's probably the best high that we can all have because it's a matter of reaching out to another person. Um, but there was another reason why I was bringing this all up and I can't believe I'm having brain failure. But I am. Um, That's okay. <laughs> but I am. It's 7 o'clock in the morning. Absolutely. Um, but I want to get back to that okay. point when I f remember. Anyway, don't mean to throw you off. That's all right. Um, it's not necessarily kindness per se, but I've discovered something. If I'm walking around with a grumpy face that looks like I want to bite concrete, <laughs> people give me that face back. If I'm walking around with a smile on my face and generally feeling jaunty, I get that back too. That invisible thread. Yeah, you know, I, um, getting back to the um, the faith thing, I know I remember now what I was saying. What I try to say to students all the time is that I, I do have an enormous amount of faith. And again, going back to that, I'm not terribly re um, that I'm a, a very faithful person. And what I've come to really believe, and I really have realized over the my many 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 years is that nothing ever stays the same, and I try to tell this to students, and that if you can have faith, it's your faith that will help you get through your difficult days, and it's your faith that will bring you back to your good days. But again, talking to students, and usually after you know I do my speech, we talk about, we always do a Q&A, and I always love the kinds of questions that they ask me. But then I love to open it up to, you know, what do you think is a small act of kindness? You know, when I've done schools as young as elementary, you know, and children will say, 
I had a young boy, and I talk about this also in Angels on Earth, and I kind of said, well, you know, a simple act of kindness can be if you see someone in the playground and they're standing by themselves and you normally don't play with that child, invite that child to come over and play with your friends. And this little boy, Anthony, raised his hand and he said to me, Miss Laura, that happened to me. I said, what happened to you? He said, I was standing all by myself. He said, nobody wanted to play with me. He said, I said, and how did that make you feel? He said, it made me feel really, really bad. And before I knew it, all these children were chiming in and saying, we'll never let that happen again. So I do believe that you can start to teach children kindness from when they're, you know, really young. In fact, I have another book out called An Invisible Thread Christmas Story, which is targeted to children ages four to eight. But, you know, a, a small act of kindness can be something as simple as opening up a door or raising your head in an elevator and say good morning. You know, I, just like you just said, Peter, you know, if you have a grumpy face, look on your face. Well, people are not going to acknowledge it. But if you look at people and you smile and you say good morning, guess what? They're going to say good morning back. Absolutely. But it's hard to look for those angels on earth because the world can be a very difficult and unpleasant place sometimes. When we look at what's happening with wars around the world, when we look at what's happening in politics, Washington, state capitals, city halls, when we look at what's happening medically in the world, it's hard to find the angels. Well, I would certainly agree with you, because this has not been an easy time, that is for sure. You know, um, but let's go back to Las Vegas. That shooting in Las Vegas was horrific. And when you think about how many people were strangers who were helping to save people, that it was beyond horrible. But there were so many people that day that were angels on earth. These were people who were strangers helping other people and saving lives of other people. So I guess because times are so difficult and um, we're all pretty attached to the news, I know I am, You've got to try to look for the good because it could, make, it, could be pretty de- it could be pretty depressing, that's for sure. And I think that what I like about my book, and I don't mean to, I, I, I do want to sound humble, these are not my stories, these are stories of other people, and I was just lucky enough and fortunate enough to be able to publish these stories. There's 29 chapter angel stories, and each story is a story about kindness how one person or people helped another person. And, you know, I get letters from readers and they say what they love about the book is they keep it by their bedside and they read one chapter a night or one chapter angel story a night and it's a nice way to go to sleep. And when a reader wrote that to me, I thought, you know what, that makes me feel so good because I know sometimes it's really hard to fall asleep. So there's 29 chapter angel stories. Hmm. How do you want people to use the book? Well, I would like for people to use the book in any way they would like to, um, but to open up their eyes and hearts to their surroundings that while there's so many bad things that are going on right now, there is so much goodness um, that happens every single day. You know, that young man 
standing in front of a wall of flames, saving a bunny. And I think we all need to try to concentrate on the goodness that's happening in our world versus um, a lot of the negativity. You know, it's interesting. I had a conversation with someone a couple of weeks ago, and he said he never really thought about angels on earth. And when he was reading An Invisible Thread, it reminded him of when of when he was driving down a road and his car was overheating. He said, and he didn't know what to do. He said, and the next thing I knew, he said, this man just kind of showed up with water. And he gave me water for my, I guess for the heater for the car. He said, and he was kind of like this invisible thread connection. He said, and um, when I drove away, I just couldn't believe it. And I, I asked the man, I said, how long ago did that story take place? He said, probably about 20, 25 years ago. I said, I'm sure that man never could have imagined that 20 or 25 years later, you'd be still talking about this person who stopped and helped you. So sometimes we can do these small acts of kindness that don't even seem like they're a big deal. And a person will talk about that story 20 years later. There's a chapter in um, Angels on Earth, which is the 25 Tacos. And it takes place in Mexico, and unfortunately, um, here was a young boy um, at Jose, and his father passed away. And in order to help pay for the groceries for the family, Jose would have to sell 25 tacos every single morning before he went to school. His mother would prepare these tacos, and he would go out and sell these tacos, and this woman at the train's bus station noticed him, and she asked him how many tacos he had, and I think he had about three or four left, and she said, let me purchase those, and they started to chat, and she, he told her that he had to sell tacos before he went to school, and she said, every day before you are done with your day, she said, if you've got any tacos left over, come over and I'll buy them, and so she would buy these tacos from him. And um, then they moved to the United States. Today, Jose is a pastor. He's married. He's got a wonderful family. He's college educated. And he still tells the story of this woman at the local train um, bus station who bought those tacos. So sometimes we can do the simplest act of kindness, and we don't even know the incredible impact that we're having on another person and how there's this incredible ripple effect that will ripple outward and have an impact for generations to come. And that's an important message, not only this holiday season, but all the coming year long. Remember about the invisible thread and angels on earth. I'd like to say thank you to Laura Schroff. Laura, do you have a a website? I do have a website, and it's uh, Laura Schroff, S-C-H-R-O-F-F. Um, dot com, and you know, t- for angels on earth, there's actually a section where you can meet the angels, and you'll see photographs of the chapter angel stories that are in angels on earth, and then there's a lot of videos from um, my first book, an invisible thread, and information about my children's book, an invisible thread Christmas story. Thank you, Laura Schroff. You give me hope. Peter, thank you so much, and I'd love to wish all your listeners a very merry Christmas, happy Hanukkah. And an 
very happy and healthy new year. Thank you. And you're listening to Converse to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. More conversation in just a bit. The WIP time, 7.22. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. And it's a chilly WIP day out there. The sun is coming up. It's started getting a little bit brighter out there. But take WIP with you, 94 WIP, no matter where you go, because the conversation will be hot enough that you won't notice the chill in the air. And I'm pleased to welcome now here for our final conversation of the morning, Cynthia Levinson and Sanford Levinson, a married couple, co-authors of Fault Lines in the Constitution, the Framers, Their Fights. Good morning, Cynthia. Good morning, Sanford. Good Good morning. morning. All right. Constitution, what are you trying to tell us? There are problems with the Constitution. Uh, The Framers, back in 1787 in, in your town, did the best they could under the circumstances that they had. But um, since then, problems have been um, shown to, to exist within the Constitution, and times have changed, and there are things we need to do about this. Beginning, I would say, with simply recognizing uh, the fault lines and talking about them, What the title comes from geology that you know most of us know that all land including you know the land under the oceans rest on geological tectonic plates most of the time we can ignore them and go on with our lives but every now and then the tectonic plates will shift and they can generate sometimes really catastrophic earthquakes and so what we focus on on the book are 18 fault lines uh, many of which are ignored, some of which, like the Electoral College, can scarcely be ignored, but all of which present potential problems and really need to be addressed. Uh, it's not that we offer a guide of exactly how to solve all these problems, but what we do say is that we need to confront them and talk about them, beginning with teenagers for whom the book is written. Okay. What are some of the problems you identify, though? Because I want to make sure that we're talking about systemic problems versus individual problems or individual problems versus systemic problems. That's a really, really good point. And we're not talking about individual problems such as particular political leaders or um, individuals at all. We're talking about, as you say, systemic structural problems that are built into our government because of the Constitution. So the first chapter, for instance, is on bicameralism. Everybody knows that we have two houses of Congress, House of Representatives and the Senate. Kids are taught that. We just accept it as a given. But the problem is that when the um, the guidelines, the rules within the Constitution say that a bill that comes up for consideration has to be passed word for word, comma for comma, identically by these two houses, then that becomes a stall on legislation that we might well need. But, but, and you can add to that the presidential veto power, which is probably uh, the strongest veto power of any presidential system in a major country anywhere in the world, 
or for that matter, if you look at American states, which we do. Uh, we compare the U.S. Constitution not only with some foreign constitutions, but in many ways, much more importantly, with the 50-state constitution. So in many ways, we have a tricameral system rather than merely a bicameral system. And what we argue is that this leads to the immense frustration that most Americans have today, whether they're left, right, or center, with regard to having any confidence in Congress or the national government really being able to address whatever they think are the major problems facing us. I mean, the approval rate of Congress these days on a good day will be 15%, and usually it hovers more about 10%. That's not the sign of a healthy political system. But is the problem the system, or is the problem one of people place party above the good of the country? Well, I mean, it's a very, very good question. One of the things we talk about um, is that the assumption in 1787, which was very heartfelt and extraordinarily naive, was that the Constitution would serve as a way of staving off the creation of political parties. That didn't last beyond, depending on which American historian you read, 1795. And certainly the election of 1800 was thoroughly dominated by party. And so we talk about that particularly with regard to the Electoral College, but also with regard to designing political districts. And we, the United States Constitution just doesn't adequately address the reality of party and the fact that the Constitution is structured to allow veto groups to develop uh, very easily, much more than to actually pass legislative programs, generally speaking. But you're absolutely right. Uh, you can't understand American politics without focusing on party. Uh, and the Constitution does a poor job of structuring that conversation. Okay. Another example. Please. Another example, um, I'm sorry, of, of one of the same problems you see, one of the fault lines. Oh, the fault line. Well, Sandy just mentioned um, um, districts. Certainly a great problem is uh, what I call gerrymandering, and he calls gerrymandering. Um, the Constitution does not prevent that problem. In fact, a combination of the Constitution and um, federal law um, seems to promote, and political parties, uh, seems to promote the ability of partisan determinations for how the House of Representatives districts within each state um, will be configured. Um, so we have examples of how that's done, how people carry that out. Um, and it's very detrimental because um, across the country, the uh, votes for one political party add up more than do the representatives for that party in Congress. There are some states that have nonpartisan commissions that determine um, what their, uh, the, the people who are going to live in various districts, how the district lines are going to be drawn, um, but most states do not. 
Um, in Maryland, for instance, it's the governor who is largely in charge of um, determining what congressional district lines will be. And that becomes a very loaded, very freighted problem. But, I mean, as you know very well, I'm sure Pennsylvania uh, right now is one of the poster states for ruthless partisan gerrymandering. Uh, the Supreme Court has a couple of cases dealing with that this year, and it'll be interesting to see if they really do tackle it. Let me mention what is undoubtedly the most obscure of the fault lines that uh, most of my colleagues in the legal academy probably really don't really appreciate. But we have a chapter on the problem of continuity in government. Um, each of the chapters begins with a story. Um, and Cynthia elaborates the fact that Flight 93, uh, which, of course, crashed in Pennsylvania, was presumably on its way to the Capitol. And if it had hit successfully, it could have killed or really debilitated hundreds of representatives and senators. Um, so there would have been a real problem along with the obvious joke to the nation of simply reconstituting the government, having a functioning national government. The fact is the Constitution requires that every single representative be elected. None of them is appointed. This made good sense in 1787, and it makes even good sense if you think of the House in a retail sense. I mean, who really cares whether there are 435 or 432 members of the House on any given day. But if, for example, 300 members of the House had been killed, then we would have been left with 235 representatives. And that raises very, very, I'm mean, actually 300 are killed, it's 135 representatives. That raises real problems in all sorts of ways. If senators are killed, ironically enough, you can replace them the next day in most states. If they're simply severely injured, then that means, too, the Senate can't function. And so buried within the Constitution is the breakdown of the government and the, the near certainty of a presidential or military dictatorship should this happen. As it happens, the Conservative American Enterprise Institute and the liberal Brookings Institution have thought about this very deeply and suggested a constitutional amendment that could go a long way toward alleviating the problem. But nothing has happened in the now 16 years since September 11th or the now 13 years since the Senate <laughs> held hearings on this proposed amendment. We just pretend that it's not a problem at all rather than talk about it and realize, you know, it's low probability. September 11th was low probability. It hasn't happened again. But if it does happen, it would be a genuine catastrophe, like the fault line slipping in the Pacific and creating the tsunami that kills 200,000 people. Well, I think Hollywood made a TV series out of it called Designated Survivor, but that's exactly. another discussion. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Exactly. You're listening to um, WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP. Cynthia Sanford, I've got to run a few commercials, but when we come back, we're going to talk more about fault lines in the Constitution, the framers, their fights. The WIP time, 
736. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. We're talking the Constitution and a whole lot more with authors Cynthia Levinson and Sanford Levinson, co-authors, fault lines in the Constitution, the framers, their fights. My name's Peter Solomon. But doesn't the Constitution... Well, let me ask this question a different way. There are two arguments I remember back from my education civics class. The strict constructionists who say what the Constitution says, what it says, and if it doesn't say it, it's not constitutional, as opposed to people who talk about the penumbra of the Constitution, where it might not say it directly, but it's in the shadow of the Constitution, and you can make an argument based on some of the other things in the Constitution. Is that, is that a valid way to look at it? Sure. Um, and as you know, I said before, I teach law, and there are you know years long courses talking about the the approach you're raising, you know the penumbras and emanations of the Constitution. What does the Equal Protection Clause really mean? What really are the powers of Congress in Article One and the like? But the the parts of the Constitution that we focus on, frankly, aren't often taught in law schools because there's nothing really to argue about in terms of what it means. So that we have a chapter, for example, on the Senate, and the implications of the fact that every single state has the same number of votes in the Senate, so that Wyoming and California, Pennsylvania and Vermont, etc., all have the same two votes. James Madison thought that was a terrible idea. He denounced it as an evil but he ultimately said it was a lesser evil because the greater evil would have been the breakdown of the convention and no constitution at all. But it has real consequences, and the world's cleverest lawyer can't go into a court and say, you know, Your Honor, it's really unfair that Pennsylvania and Delaware have the same two votes because what part of two do you not understand? And with regard to what I was mentioning before, the fact that every representative needs to be elected, none can be appointed, there's nothing to debate in terms of meaning. The debate is whether we're well served in the 21st century by these decisions made quite sensibly and understandably in 1787, but we're living in the 21st century. So, you know, you're absolutely right with regard to much of the Constitution, but not necessarily about the parts of the Constitution that we focus on, which really are often very specific and just not open to clever arguments about meaning. Well, if I understand you right, then, let's take the look. Let's take the case of Representative Conyers, who is residing from Congress, and the reasons why we won't get into. His state governor has said, all right, he's resigning, I'll call the special election, but I won't call it till November of next year. So there'll be all that time where the people in his district get no representation. Right, right. And you know, that, that's, that is worth arguing about in terms of gubernatorial power. But the real issue is that we need an election. So you could say that we shouldn't wait till next November, we should have it in March. But what doesn't make sense 
is to have the election tomorrow because candidates really do have to prepare. And also, unfortunately, the governor can't say, we need the representative tomorrow, so I'm going to appoint the new representative. That's unconstitutional. Whereas if a senator had resigned or died, in most states the governor can replace can appoint a replacement tomorrow. This is likely to happen in Minnesota in the right. next couple of weeks. Right. When Al Franken resigns, Minnesota will get a new senator literally the very next day, whereas with representatives, that's just literally not possible. And the power goes with the governor to appoint a senator. He could even appoint himself. Right, right. No, that, that's, that's true. The Constitution yeah. certainly doesn't forbid that. So there's room for abuse. Well, many, many, much room. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, in some cases there's room for abuse, but what we also want to focus on that, you know, the abuse in a certain sense comes from decisions coming in 1787, because if you view the Senate as problematic in as much as it gives small states tremendously greater power, than large states like Pennsylvania, the abuse is built into the Constitution in ways that were partly envisioned in 1787 and were accepted reluctantly as a compromise necessary to get the Constitution in the first place, but that's also true with slavery. And nobody would say, well, you know, the framers in 1787 told us we had to compromise with slave owners. So we really shouldn't question that, and we should accept their decision made in 1787. That would be regarded as a crazy argument. And what we want to say is that other, argue, other decisions made in 1787 that made good sense at the time, given the realities of 1787, really are biting us in a number of ways that we really ought to talk about in 2017 or 2018. That, that applies certainly to the Electoral College and also to another fault line that we talk about, voting rights. It was understandable back to 230 years ago that the framers didn't want to deal with how elections were going to be carried out, and not only presidential elections, but um, all sorts of elections um, for political office. And so they left the... Uh, decisions about what officers should be voted on as opposed to appointed and how the elections are going to be carried out um, and who could vote. And who could run for office. And who could run for office up to the states. So there's a crazy quilt. Um, We do not have a consistent national system. Go ahead. Well, I I want to bring up something you, you brought up before the break that what this does, in effect, is give the political party that controls any given state an enormous degree of power that they can abuse with regard to structuring elections to favor their own political party. So that one of the really significant issues that faces the country is the issue of voter suppression or of stacking the deck in drawing congressional districts to favor your own party. Um, And the framers literally didn't think about that because, as you pointed out, they were 
hoping against hope that we wouldn't have political parties, but we do. Well, you raised the question of the Electoral College, and there are those people who say, well, the president won the Electoral College, but Mrs. Clinton won the popular vote. Right. Makes no sense. We, we agree with you. <laughs> Probably most, in fact, we quote both Mr. Trump and Ms. Clinton, both of whom have said that the Electoral College is not a good idea. Right. They said it long before the, um, this past election. Yeah. I mean, every poll since 1944 has shown that a majority of the public um, rejects the Electoral College and supports some system of direct election. So the obvious question is, given majority public opinion that is opposed to the Electoral College, why hasn't anything happened? So we have another chapter in the book on how Article 5 of 1787, Article 5 deals with how you amend the Constitution. And it turns out that the national Constitution is almost literally incredibly difficult to amend, far more difficult to amend than the 50 state constitutions. And so even though you have majority sentiment against the Electoral College, or even though in the 1970s you had a healthy majority of the states that voted to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, it's not in the Constitution, because in order to get an amendment, even if you can get two-thirds of each House of Congress, which proved impossible with regard to the Electoral College, you then have to get three-quarters of the states. So this is one of the things that makes it discouraging, frankly, to talk about confronting the fault lines that we address, because a lot of them would require a constitutional amendment, and because it's so difficult to amend the Constitution, I mean, think of the continuity in government issue that we talked about uh, before the break. It's tempting simply to deny the reality of the fault lines. I went to school in Northern California. Stanford is built literally on top of the San Andreas Fault. Everybody knows that there's going to be a catastrophic earthquake one time or another. But let me tell you, most people in Northern California just live in denial of this, and it's easier to live in denial about the presence of these fault lines than really to say, okay, can we do anything about them, in part because Article 5 makes it so difficult to amend the Constitution. One of the things I want to emphasize is that this book is written for 10-year-olds and up, and the up goes you know, through teenagers and adults as well. So we don't leave the reader completely hopeless about all these. We do propose a number of ways that well, everybody, including young people, can respond to these fault lines. Um, Sandy and I have a debate in the book. There's an audio version of the book, and you can actually listen to us debate. Um, about about whether or not there should be another constitutional convention or whether we should go through an amendment process combined with uh, legislation to change some of these problems. And, in fact, we're going to be talking about this. Uh, we do it in a couple of ways. One is that we're going to be talking about these issues at the National Constitution Center this coming Friday 
at 1 o'clock in a program for young people. And in addition, we're blogging about the book. These issues are so current. They're so timely right now that we were still working on the book until just days before it went to print in June. And we continue to write about it because we have a blog at www.faultlines.com in which we keep the book updated and show the relationship between current events and the Constitution. One of our most recent blogs, for instance, was about the plague in Madagascar. What would happen if the plague, which is kind of riveting for kids, um, ends up in the United States as well? What rights does the government have? What rights does the president have to quarantine people, to prevent free passage, um, to require inoculations, or whatever it might be. This is a fault line in the Constitution because it's not just not clear what happens if we're invaded by some sort of bug, for instance. So we do want to encourage people to know about the National Constitution Center on Friday at 1 and also about our blog. Thank you. And I'd like to say thank you to Cynthia Levinson and Sanford Levinson, co-authors of Fault Lines in the Constitution, the framers of their fights. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. It's been Bye. my pleasure. And it's been WIP Sunday. Stay tuned for Stunny Hill. Nothing left to say, but see you soon.